1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past.
0: Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system Or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple the guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. In 2004, the University of California Press published a book by my colleague Ruth Rogowski. The book is Hygienic Modernity, Meanings of Health and Disease in Treaty Port China. Since the book was published in 2004, it's won a number of awards, not only in Asian studies, but also in the history of medicine. It fundamentally reshapes ideas about how to think about colonialism and and about modernization and the place of hygiene in these projects. It's also a really remarkable study design in thinking about how to do a local history, taking a variety of stakeholders into account over a substantial period of time. I had the great honor of talking with Ruth with students in my course, History of Global Health. You'll hear each of them in the interview talking with Ruth. They are Dustin Kai, Daniela Falcone, Sonia Kapoor, Marissa Kataoka, Karen O, oh, and Sidney McMillan. Ruth, thanks so much for uh, talking with us today about your book, Hygienic Modernity. So the book is fundamentally about modernity and the experience of modernization. And the questions that you're asking are uh, why the Chinese elite embarked on efforts to modernize um, and then how they went about doing this. And what I took to be two of the big punchlines is that the reason why they did this was to uh, deal with projects of nation building and national questions of national sovereignty. And the way they went about doing this was through hygienic uh, medical campaigns. So we're interested in tracing this history together together. Could you start by setting us in Tianjin? Uh, And I'm going to let you uh, work. (laughs) Help me with that pronunciation. Um, And this is the site where your study takes place. It's a treaty port on China's west coast and a relatively recent vintage, apparently, uh, from the 13th century. um, And now just a really huge, uh, huge city. Could you uh, give us a snapshot of what it means to be a treaty port and what? Phenomenal was like and set us in that place. Okay, great.
3: Well, that's a thing. Well, first, thanks so much for having me and asking questions about my book. So, we'll get right to the setting for the book. Tianjin was a treaty port from, let's say, the, the mid 19th century until the treaty port system ended right around World War II. And treaty ports were cities. That, which were mostly on the coast, but not all on the coast, but usually along rivers, some kind of navigable water, uh, were cities that were opened more or less under threat of punishment at gunpoint um, by various imperial powers, starting with Great Britain uh, after the Opium Wars. And... Uh, the, the main goal for the imperial powers in opening treaty ports was so that they could organize trade according to what they took to be universal values, uh, not the particularist values of the countries that they were dealing with. So in, in treaty ports, foreigners, uh, set tariffs. They, uh, took care of the customs, uh, organization. They, uh, Basically, made laws uh, that were imported from the West and also Japan, since Japan was also a treaty port. Power. And uh, one of the main legal aspects of the treaty port was that it gave foreigners extraterritoriality, which means that foreigners were tried and and judged according to their own uh, legal systems, not the Chinese legal system. And you'll find treaty ports not just in China, but in just about every place in the world that was exposed to imperialism. So in Japan, throughout East Asia, in uh, various uh, parts of of Africa, but in a lot of places they were overcome by full-on colonialism, right? So there was no need for a treaty port. A treaty port is like a little colonial enclave in a larger country that has maintained its sovereignty.
2: The key term that you bring up as well is that of semi-colonialism. And one of the things that's so impressive about the book is that it defies any clear uh, bifurcation between the colonizer and the colonized, also um, Western science-based medicine and indigenous medicine. As you look at this transition, especially between ballpark of the 1850s And uh, the 1940s or so, when you have a number of different um, political actors coming in, uh, the British, the French, and really importantly, the Japanese as well, and all talking with, um, thinking with the Chinese elite Mm -hmm. in in different ways. Um, So I wonder if you um, could trace really broadly what this political history was, roughly. From the 1850s until roughly the 1940s.
3: Well, yeah, semi-colonialism is certainly it's a it's a term that I I certainly didn't invent it, but uh, it's been used to characterize China's experience from the Opium Wars until the mid 20th century, and uh, it's probably more famously combined with semi-colonial semi-feudal uh, in Chinese, especially. Chinese Marxist analysis, the semi-feudal means that uh, parts of Chinese culture, old parts of Chinese culture maintained throughout this period while at the same time there was kind of a veneer of colonial dominance. Uh, So once again, this is pointing back to the fact that China never fully became a colony of any one imperial power, but maintained a kind of murky Compromised sovereignty, uh, as i would mentioned before, and issues of trade. Uh, and trade is probably the, the, or the economic life of, of the, the nation is probably the place where you would see the impact of semi-colonialism most clearly. But Western and Japanese influence could extend beyond the economic into obviously into the social and cultural, which is one of the main points of my book.
2: The, the word in the book that uh, follows uh, through the story is Wei Sheng. Mm-hmm. And I uh, wonder whether you could explain uh, what it means to talk about this term using the phrase guarding health. Uh, ver- um, as opposed to sort of the later iterations um, in which it comes to mean, as you, as the title of the book suggests, hygienic modernity, and what it would look like to guard health um, in earlier periods and how this didn't entirely disappear, mm-hmm. that it really was an important piece, um, kernel of the concept that stayed with it, uh, but in many ways got recast. Right. Well,
3: that's, that's a big question because it's, it's, it's really the underlying theme of the book. So maybe in a, in a nutshell, the idea behind more traditional Chinese approaches to maintaining health, or preserving health, from my reading of traditional medical texts, Rarely included, explicitly included the issue of cleanliness or the issues, the issues of order, uh, visual organization, um, environmental order. And it struck me that with the, with the coming of imperialism in the 19th century, that th- these issues of, of cleanliness, order, and then accompanied issues of the germ theory of disease, kind of were uh, accumulated around this term Weisheng. And so that's where I see the major departure. Uh, Weisheng, prior to the 19th century, referred primarily to what an individual could do to maintain his or her health and had very little to do with what uh, a society or a government or a nation, certainly not what a nation could do. And so that's another major shift from the individual to the nation. And that's those are the two major issues that I see happening around the term nation.
2: The way in which this shift happened um, inflected with the different uh, uh, foreign stakeholders that were coming in um, to the to the area over time, and um, these uh, additions to the urban landscape were uh, ranged in terms of their violence in particular. And you have really interesting things, I think, to say about um, the importance of violence um, in implementing public health campaigns compared to other sorts of studies along these lines um, versus just regular uh, legal assimilation. And here I'm going to hand it over to Sonia.
3: The suppression of the Boxer rebellion is an important event in this book because of the increased use of force by imperial powers. What do you think this shows about violence
2: in public health measures, and how did violence or
1: lack thereof
2: affect the assimilation of Western concepts into Chinese thinking?
3: That's a great question uh, I mean in some ways it's asked me to comment more broadly on public health itself and Uh, I think that it suggests overall this issue. I mean, the the boxer uprising and the suppression of the boxers is one particular moment, but um, other historians have looked at how public health came along with armies, uh, especially in places like the Philippines, uh, Warwick Anderson's work and, uh, certain places in the Caribbean as well. So it's a, it's a fairly standard um, history, I would say, for the early 20th century. And I, I'm, I'm taking your question to mean what, what, would be, what, it, what has become, what is the lingering impact or the, the, the lingering uh, effects of this uh, as we move later into the 20th century and even today? That's a question I'm not sure I'm 100% prepared to, to answer since I, I would raise the caveat that I'm not an expert on public health, contemporary public health. But I do think that um, one of the things that struck me as being quite odd or interesting about the case that I studied was the way that uh, the elite's intinging at the time, and I think this is something that could be traced throughout China to be an opinion held by uh, elites of the time. One finds that while there was a lot of sadness about the violence and the loss of life, there was a basic agreement with the need for very strict enforcement of certain regulations upon the less educated population. And so that question, I think what it raises is, what is is the perspective of uh, indigenous elites and how might that perspective reflect certain aspects that perhaps even Western powers have maybe backed away from? over the course of the 20th century. Uh, I think I'll just leave it at that, but what I would suggest then is basically looking at the the different reactions uh, to violence from different groups and how that becomes really important in history.
2: For people who uh, are familiar with Foucault and Foucauldian theory, it's it's really nice that you can, readers can see some of these key ideas coming up um, in the book, but you're definitely not heavy-handed with it, which is something I really appreciate, but ways of, of thinking about the relationship um, between uh, how, how Foucault would, for example, have us understand the relationship between very firm uh, space segregation as opposed to more self-discipline, self-management and seeing these as, as somewhat separate but you're showing them coming together and also no uh, no great divide between the idea of a, a western sci- uh, laboratory based science and indigenous practices of taking care of oneself one of the um features that also comes up is in the idea of modernity it seems like modernity is something that's always just around the corner sort of like foucauld's concept of Uh, power and biopower. That's why it's always uh, an ongoing project. And here I'm going to hand it over to Sydney. In your discussion of germ warfare and patriotic weixing, you mentioned how some thinkers of the time believed, and I quote, China's governments would be doomed to forever indoctrinating an unfit Chinese everyday man in a hygienic modernity that he was unable to achieve. It seems as though hygienic modernity has been tied to national deficiency throughout its evolution. Do you believe that it will always set forth a sort of unachievable standard, both in terms of this uh, elite that you mentioned and also for the common man? So once again, bringing it to the present day, is it? Mm -hmm. And we can also
3: talk about historical actors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, this is funny because what I'll do is... Respond with the first thing that came to my mind. After I finished writing the book, then I started to think of what would a hygienic modernity look like if it included traditional aspects of preserving health. And uh, I thought of communities that had clean water, uh, access to clean air, uh, reduced stress, and certainly... Excellent indoor plumbing. Uh, but in addition, these these communities would also do things like meditation and mindfulness and eat foods that were balanced according to traditional perspectives of what a balanced diet might be. So I do think that in China today, and in some ways I think it mirrors. In terms of events in the, in the United States as well, and in the West in general, in the West there's be, uh, been an increased interest in mindfulness practices that are seen as originating in the the East, and it's become part of uh, self-care uh, regimens for many Americans. I think in China, there has been an increased interest in their own health preserving traditions among elites Um, and certainly perspectives on food ways, uh, what, what counts as a balanced diet. What's a, what are, what's a healthy way of dressing all of these sorts of things that are, we might consider them part of folk culture are, we're we're certainly things that never ended with, within uh, Chinese culture. So what I see happening in China today is a, an active interest in combining, let's say the older meanings of Weishou with contemporary accomplishments in Weishou to achieve a health with Chinese characteristics. Let's say now, of course this is made difficult in great part because of the problems with environmental hygiene, uh, particularly air pollution, but also concerns about purity of food, uh, water contamination, these sorts of uh, problems that have come along with the pursuit, the very quick pursuit of instantaneous development that have left parts of the Chinese environment severely compromised.
1: In
2: thinking about... um the the relationship between um, the ongoing relationship between forms of, of self-management and also these more formalized ideas, uh, seemingly although not actually um, externally imposed laboratory-based sciences. One of the things that I think comes to mind also is um, the NIH new office for complementary and alternative medicine and the fact that the Nobel Prize went to Asian researchers uh, looking at a quote unquote traditional um, remedy, the ways in which these sorts of um, uh, practices and interventions are in ways repurposed and relabeled. and how other other practices uh, are retained. But a lot of it is about what you can symbolically accomplish, not just instrumentally accomplish with these, these forms of intervention. In thinking about what's distinctive about China in particular, especially uh, given the different case studies are out there, one of the uh, uh, parallels and contrasts that you draw throughout the book is with India in particular, in thinking about the early, well, the 19th century British um, uh, project of imperialism in India, as well as the very different um, efforts and effects in China. And uh, here I'm going to hand it over to Marissa. And also returning
3: back to your comments on semi-colonialism, In your view, what are the similarities and differences between India's and China's interactions with imperialistic
2: powers and what characteristics protected China from succumbing to full imperialism? Oh, okay.
3: Well, a line that I sometimes use, it's a little flippant, but I have said that Western powers weren't crazy enough. Try to fully colonize China or the Qing Empire Uh, being one of the world's largest land-based empires, it was simply just too much, especially since the major uh, imperial power, Great Britain, already had India on its hands once it had turned its attentions to the Qing. So In some ways, it was simply a a realization of the logistical complexity and also the fact that just by manipulating the levers of semi-colonialism, so controlling a few treaty ports, uh, setting tariffs, um, maintaining these certain extraterritoriality, these certain controls, uh, Western powers found that they could benefit in a way that didn't come with the, the, uh, the problems, the headaches of really being responsible for all of the administration. So keeping the Chinese administration in power worked to their benefit. Uh, and in some ways you could say it's just a question of chronology. You know, um, had China been first on the front and India second, maybe it would have. Uh, so that's kind of a flippant answer, and I'm trying to remember the second part of your question. Um, can you repeat your question for me? So I asked about the differences between China and India, and then the
1: specific characteristics that allowed China to engage in trade with Britain and other imperial powers, but not under,
3: not succumbing to colonialism. Yeah. Well, it it is also the case that uh, the Qing Empire was a fairly well-defined, territorially bounded political entity, unlike India. So I think there was, while most historians feel that there wasn't something like a popular nationalism that maintained, that helped to maintain the Qing Empire's sovereignty, that that's something that came much later in the 20th century. Uh, from a kind of a territorial administrative perspective, there was perhaps a better, a certain unity about, that was created by the Qing government that uh, was perhaps lacking in the various uh, kind of patchwork uh, sovereignties that were India as Great Britain encountered it. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that there was too much something about China per se. I think my my initial flippant answer that imperialism came to it a little bit later uh, is probably the, the best way to, to think about it. Uh, but of course, we also have to take into account the Japanese uh, encounters with China, and Japan was. The one power that did attempt to, uh, you, you can't really say colonize because Japan during the war set up uh, puppet governments, first in, in, Manch- in Manchuria and then in the parts of China that it conquered. It was trying to govern through Chinese elites uh, instead of having a direct colonizing government established. During the war years, but uh, Japan perhaps came more, the, the closest to colonizing China than any Western power. And that's something I think I try to detail. The um,
2: involvement and, and intervention of Japan in particular um, comes uh, to the fore around 1900. Um, in, in particular, and this uh, question of how the concept of Wei Sheng changed and sort of was translated conceptually also um, brings out issues, and I am so impressed with your scholarship, with linguistic translation. And um, some of the images you show in the book are, uh, for example, the translation um, from Chinese characters, or rather from um, English characters and Chinese characters, of uh, what would be in the present day called public Service announcements from the women's Christian temperance movement in Britain and these sorts of things. Um, but the challenge of sources and the challenge of linguistic translation in the case of Japan is especially interesting because there's sort of a repackaging of the concept that happens uh, when Japan is more at the fore um, of the story of Tianjin. So, could you tell us a bit about what was happening around 1900? and how Japan really ended up serving this, this crucial role. Well, what
3: you'd have to do is uh, go back to the Opium Wars, uh, the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s, where China kind of faced the, the full impact of British and also French imperialism in Japan, uh, which was opened by... American forces uh, to treaty ports in the mid 19th century, around the same time as, as uh, China faced the same challenges. uh, Japan decided to uh, try to resist Western imperialism through employing the tools that the West brought to it. So, This is the story of the Meiji Restoration, Uh, Japan's very conscious or on the part of certain percentage of Japanese elites, a very conscious effort at uh, maintaining sovereignty, establishing uh, a Western-style modernity that included a very comprehensive, uh, very clear understanding that... uh, Medicine would be medicine in the military, were the two central aspects of, of modernity. And so, uh, Japan then begins to serve as something of a role model for many Chinese elites in the late 19th century. Uh, the Chinese elites see this modernization program as in Japan as being has as having been quite successful. And the fact that they were the first East Asians to accomplish this uh, made Japan, made a lot a lot of appeal for Chinese elites at the time.
2: The term, uh, quote unquote, yellow modernity, uh, sort of is the idea of um, potentially Japan serving as something of a role model for how um, an Asian, uh, a group of people in Asia could actually accomplished modernity, um, but this was freighted and, um, and, and certainly not a politically correct term in the present day. Um, but the idea that, uh, again, breaking down a clear distinction, a clear bifurcation between one colonizer and a body of uh, colonized people, is really interesting in the case of Japan because, as you show, the Chinese elite are so um, important in thinking through the ideas, um, coming uh uh through Japan in how the, the Chinese elite should uh engage with uh quote unquote the Chinese people. So it's a, a sort of a, a class based distinction within this group, not only um an a nation-based distinction between being in China and outside of China. And so Japan is just um so uh Fascinating and really, really important for this story. We wanted to ask you a few questions along along mm-hmm. these lines. And here I'm going to turn it over to Dustin.
0: So we talked a bit about Japan's
1: influence on China achieving hygienic modernity, and you sort of say that Japan was the final push or the culmination of hygienic modernity in China. Um, but Japan also definitely had some pretty negative effects on China. And you in chapter nine, you briefly mentioned Unit 731. Um, So could you go in a little bit more depth about what Unit 731 was, uh, how that affected China's population, and how that really impacted China's achievement of modernity?
3: Okay. Well, Unit 731, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Unit 731, I'm not sure even to this day how well known it is in the U.S., but it was Japan's uh, a, a, a wing of the Japanese Imperial Army. That was tasked with developing biological and chemical weapons, and uh, its leader Ishishiro, established a uh, a laboratory kind of headquarters in Manchuria. So that's northeast of of the city that I studied. Uh, almost as soon as Japan extended its direct Control of Manchuria after the Mukden Incident or Jiliba uh, in nineteen in nineteen thirty one. So this was an instance. Well, m- many many countries at this time had very active uh, biological and chemical warfare development projects, including the United States. Uh, what you see with the Japanese case is that. The laboratories were intentionally established overseas, and uh, I think the the biggest legacy to, that you will see still discussed today in East Asia of Unit 731 is the fact that it uh, did experiments on on human uh, captives. Most of whom were Chinese, but it included also Russians and even American POWs. So, the, um, and also another little known aspect of Unit 731 is that the physicians who worked for Unit 731, the scientists who worked for Unit 731, were granted uh, clemency by the United States government uh, after the war in return for. The access to the, the data that was generated by Unit 731. Uh, and these, the it, it was not a fringe organization uh, because of Japan's total mobilization for warfare. Uh, certainly every nation totally mobilized its scientific personnel uh, for the war effort, and Japan was no exception. So Unit 731 at its height um, in the early 40s, also included just about, it was kind of a who's who of bacteriologists, epidemiologists, um, uh, zoologists, and physicians were were part of, were linked to Unit 731. So the, the effect that Unit 731 may have had on Chinese modernity, I think, is... Certainly, very far removed from the scientific realm, it is, and maintains to this day as a symbol of uh, Japanese atrocity, and forms a kind of a target that allows uh, mobilization of of Chinese nationalism and anti, specifically anti-Japanese nationalism. Uh, So I think it's it's. That unit 731 plus the uh, what the event that was called the the rape of Nanjing are the basically the two points of the war experience that are uh, mem- most the most memorialized and uh, the most the, the most symbolically fraught uh, aspects of the. Chinese experience of World War II so that's I think how it, I don't think it has much impact on the kind of medical issues that, that we're talking about but rather extends well beyond medicine into the realm of, of national mobilization and national sovereignty
2: one of the points you started out with was uh, the observation that military and medicine are really hard ever to disentangle. And it seems like even though the, um, the effects seem to be primarily political, how, how science was operating um, at this time um, in the interest of um, national uh, projects and continues to be. Um, commemorated and memorialized in this way. And um, to sort of uh, extend on this point, I'm going to hand it over to Karen. So as you described, there was a lot of tension between China and Japan throughout the 1920s and 30s as Japan exerted its power on China through violent imperialism. And you've touched on this a bit, but uh, do you think that this aggressive imperialism helps to explain some of the events during World War II regarding conflict between China and Japan, um, as well as post-World War II. So the so
3: you're talking about the 20s and 30s and how events of the 20s and 30s impacted Sino-Japanese relations during the war and
2: post-war. Just how China and Japan were able to heal its... Tensions, um, if you believe that.
3: Okay, so the lasting legacy, then perhaps, mm-hmm. of the uh, the uh, history of imperialism and, and war between mm-hmm. the two countries. What's the lasting legacy?
2: Yeah, and even um, the sort of the briefer term legacy of, of simply in uh, in World War Two, um, the extent to which this uh, anything we learn can shape our understandings of. World War II in terms of China and Japan?
3: Well, I, I do have to throw out there that I think one of the aspects that is in in, in popular consciousness not well explored is the question of collaborators. Uh, I think that in my work I in hygienic modernity, what I tended to do was follow the work of Chinese elites in the public health field. And it's undeniable that many of them were educated in in Japan or had Japanese teachers. And many of them stayed on even under Japanese occupation uh, and became branded in some ways as collaborators, which is I think an interesting question when you're looking at the medical field, because, um, what I found is that many of these uh, Chinese physicians um, kind of maintained their duties to protect the health of the city, even though they were serving a different master, so to speak, under the Japanese occupation. So it becomes really, uh, and this is something I I didn't have the wherewithal to research it as deeply as I had wanted to. Uh, after 1945, those who collaborated with the Japanese regime were dealt with quite harshly in many cases. Um, I'm not sure what the fate of many of the individuals who ran the public health service during the Japanese occupation was, but that would have, that is a very interesting question. Uh, so I, I think that we can look at Sino-Japanese conflict on a certain uh, state-to-state level, but I'm interested in the middleman. And this has become a a fairly large topic for research scholars, looking at what the motivations for collaboration were, uh, what was the fate of collaborators after the war. Um, With regard to the legacy of these conflicts, in sino Japanese relations today, uh, obviously Japan and China are like the United States and China, inextricably linked, primarily because of uh, because of economic necessity. But there are certainly uh, some highly fraught conflicts about the memory of. Uh, When I address these questions, for example, in my teaching, if you were to take my my Chinese history or my East Asian history class, uh, what I try to do is, once again, I tend, maybe it's because I'm not a political scientist, I'm an historian, I I, I tend not to think about China and Japan. I uh, will look at different groups, for example, within Japanese society to understand that there are some who uh, are very much in favor of things like reparations and um, uh, apologies. And, uh, and these people in Japan tend to be more on the left. And then there are hardline uh perspectives on the, on the right. In other words, that within Japan, the story of the legacy of World War II is highly complex. And similarly within China, it's very complex as well. Uh, and it's, I think, difficult to just talk about it in kind of stark, nation-state
2: terms. One of the rewarding things about the book is, again, that there is no easy bifurcation It shows between the colonizer and the colonized, um, sort of thinking as a lump about who who are the Chinese when you have these different groups within China, um, different uh, groups coming in uh, as with legal systems in a semi-colonial sort of role, whether it's Japan or um, or the British in the earlier period, and it, hearing the, the phrase, the Chinese elite, which is probably, I would it seems to be the biggest uh, group that you follow throughout the book, uh, not so much interested in the reception of these ideas by everyday Chinese necessarily, but in how the Chinese um, elite end up managing their own relationship to um, to foreign uh, foreign stakeholders, and also re- managing their relationship to um, the rest of the Chinese um, population, and uh, thinking about the Chinese elite and uh, thinking about collaborators in World War II. These sorts of things it just resonates so much with Primo Levi's work on the gray zone and the idea how we see these sorts of themes and all sorts of different. Um, different contexts and, and the, the light that sheds on those as well. Um, in addition to the to the legacy of uh, Japan and, and relationships with China, we're curious about the legacy of this book and this project for your own research and uh, where you're heading now and what uh, what the fruits of these labors are. In addition, I should add to the many many prizes uh, this book won both. Um, in Asian uh, Asian studies and also in the history of medicine, really uh, crossing uh, two different groups. Um, so going back to the topic of Weishang, uh, you mentioned a lot of pre-modern definitions
3: um, early on in the book and really throughout. Uh, and so in chapter one, you
2: define pre-modern Weishang as a loose, luminous orb of a word that invoked multiple associations. Uh, so I'm wondering... Have you followed up on your work and your research of this book um, to see and if to see how and
3: if Wei Sheng is carried out in the present day? Um, and with that, do you think Wei still holds some of these original pre-modern associations in 2016, or was there a complete transformation? Uh, and if so, do you see any sections of the Chinese population really holding on to these uh, meanings? Yeah, thanks for the question. So um uh, in common parlance basically means whether or not something's clean. So it's a verb. It can be a verb. Dasa Wixang is to clean up. Um the Weishengjian the is the bathroom. So it all in common parlance still has to do with dirt and poop, basically, uh and or lack thereof. So there's another word in Chinese called yangsheng which means to nurture life and that word still carries the more traditional connotations of, you know, meditating, uh eating the right things, uh maybe circulating your chi, uh and so it's actually this these traditional meanings of of, of hygiene, of, of preserving health that have uh, inspired some of my subsequent research. I'm interested in what people think about the term qi, uh which for me kind of embodies the, the main essence of Chinese medicine and Chinese health ways, but it's become a globalized term. And uh, all my, y'all, y'all, y- y- yeah, qi. We <laughs> all know what qi is, right? Um, everybody has carries with them their own definitions of qi. So I'm interested in how this term, the content of this term, changed not only across time but as it circulated from China to places like the United States. So that's one of my, my current projects is looking at the history of qi.
2: This book is uh, the the current book, and we're looking forward to reading, uh, reading the next book. It's just so masterly as a concept history, because one of the um, people will often study words as they come into being and fade out of being, but being able to Hold on to Weisheng, and then look at the ways in which the meaning changes over time. Instead of looking at simply how it comes and goes, just really impressive. And so we're looking forward to seeing your seeing your next work. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, thank you guys. It's a great question.